Our text today comes from Luke chapter 14, continuing our study in the Gospel according to Luke. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread in the Sabbath that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we come before your word today and we kneel and we humble ourselves and we ask you to instruct us. We pray that you would fill us all with your spirit, that we might receive and understand and apply everything that you have said. And Father, I pray especially that you would fill me with your spirit, that I might be able to communicate these things clearly. Strengthen us all today by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In her 1992 novel, Children of Men, P.D. James depicts a futuristic society where for some mysterious reason, People are no longer capable of bearing children. There are no children being born. The human race has experienced in the novel universal barrenness for a very long time. So as a result, schools are empty, playgrounds lay unoccupied and barren, and some particularly unhinged people set their affections on their pets, on their cats and dogs. They treat them like their children. They dress them up in baby clothes, they put them in baby strollers, and they walk around town and, and call them their, their babies. Now, this novel was written in 1992, and I'm sure that uh, P.D. James had no way of knowing back then in 1992 how prophetic her book would be. Today, we have a form of self-imposed barrenness, and people, in a very real sense, are replacing having children with having cats and dogs. Now, now dogs and cats are, are great. Their companionship is a gift from God, but they aren't a replacement in society for having children. The U.S. pet care industry, for example, is $20 billion bigger than the U.S. toy industry. People are spending more on their pets than they are on toys for their children. Uh, one survey indicated that 83% uh, of pet owners who do not have children, 83% of pet owners refer to themselves as their dog's mommy or daddy. And, and amid all of the doggy playdates and doggy daycare and doggy dress-up weddings, if you care to Google that, uh, and the doggy memorial services, some, some veterinarians and, and animal experts are suggesting that all this attention is actually making pets more neurotic and more poorly behaved, especially with dogs. The, the human-pet relationship is based on authority and boundaries and clear expectations and firm commands. And when you blur that and you, and you treat animals like children, what you get is a psychologically wrecked animal. But of course, there are kitty and doggy psychologists to help you out when you get to that point. Now, uh, of course, I, I can't say all that without saying that, remember in the time of David, Nathan the prophet told a parable where he talked about a little ewe lamb who was uh, a pet. And uh, he says that this, this lamb was like a daughter to his owner. But remember also that owner had other children. This little lamb was not a replacement for, for children. But of course, in Jesus' day, it's hard to believe 
that people would view their working animals, say their ox or their donkey. It's hard to believe that they would view their working animals as their you know, fur babies, right? They, they wouldn't view them as their, as their children. Nobody in Israel in the first century would think of their donkey or their ox as a replacement for a child. And yet in two chapters, twice, Jesus has rebuked the Pharisees and the rulers of the synagogue for loving their animals more than people, for, for treating animals better than they treated their brothers and sisters. Last week, you remember we read in the, on the Sabbath in the synagogue, Jesus healed a woman who had been bent over and, and shriveled up in pain for 18 years. And he healed her on the Sabbath and the president of the synagogue stood up and said, you can't do that. You can't heal somebody on the Sabbath. You've got six days a week to heal and uh, you, don't, you don't need to do that kind of work on the Sabbath. And Jesus responded, which of you doesn't take his animal out of the stall and give him water uh, on the Sabbath? So if you can loose your animal and go water them on the Sabbath, why can't I loose a woman who's been tied up for 18 years with this infirmity? Why can't I do this on the Sabbath when your animal's only been bound for a few hours? The message there is you show more compassion to your animals than you do this woman. Now, on another Sabbath day after worship, at the beginning of chapter 14, which we read just a minute ago, Jesus is invited to eat at the house of a different ruler of a different synagogue. And as he's invited over, they're watching Jesus closely. They might have just invited him to see what he was going to do. Perhaps this is a, a setup of some kind, because there's another man invited there that day, a man with a condition called Dropsy. Now, now, dropsy is an antique, uh, it's an it's a arcane word uh, for edema. It's the, modern, um, it's the modern condition, what we call edema. Edema is a condition where you have fluid buildup uh, in, the, in the soft tissues. I think small blood vessels leak uh, fluid between the tissues. And so there's painful joints, swelling, and, and organ swelling. And, and it's visible. It's a not very hidden condition. You can tell if someone has edema. They have a swollen arm or a swollen leg or, uh, or a swollen joint. So it's not a hidden condition. And this man is there and Jesus is there. So it feels like a setup. It feels like they're baiting Jesus with this situation. But this time Jesus starts with a question because he knows he's being baited. He asks the lawyers and the Pharisees, okay, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus is pressing the issue here. Now, what's the answer to that question? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, if Israel is defined by the rabbis and their commentaries on the law, and if Israel is defined and righteousness is defined by the commentaries on the commentaries on the commentaries of the law, and if Israel as she sits now, the complete and total package, if that's the salvation of Israel, if, if, if this is what's going to deliver Israel, how we see everything right now, then the answer is no, it is not lawful to heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Sabbath. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And so then the answer to the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, is most certainly yes, it is lawful. But Jesus asked the question and they, they keep silent. They don't, they don't say anything. Now they're trapped. So Jesus takes the man and he lays his hands on him and he heals him and he lets him go. 
he, he dismisses him. I thought that's a little odd little insertion, little phrase there. Why did Jesus dismiss him? Well, maybe it was evident that the man didn't want to be there in the first place. I mean, if, if you're just there to, uh, to, to, to be a parlor trick or you're just there to, to, to go to situations, it's going to be uncomfortable. He is rejoicing that he's healed. No doubt he's rejoicing. But these Pharisees are using him, and so Jesus uh, lets him off the hook, and Jesus dismisses him and, and lets him go on. And then Jesus says again, pretty much, you care more about your animals than you care about people. If you have a donkey or an ox that's fallen into a pit, are you going to wait until Sunday? Are you going to wait till the next day to get him out? Or are you going to do that on the Sabbath? Are you going to do it on Saturday? The answer is obvious. No matter what these Pharisees demanded of other people, they would always make exceptions for themselves and their own circumstances. What if one of these, what if the son of the ruler of the synagogue fell into a pit on the Sabbath? Would he call down the well and say, all right, I'm going to lower a sandwich and some water and you're going to wait till tomorrow. We'll come get you out then. Is that, is that what he's going to do? If his, if his animal fell into a ditch or a pit, would, would he wait until the next day? They wouldn't hesitate. I mean, the, the, the rulers of the synagogues and the lawyers, they wouldn't sit there and agonize over the legality of helping their own son or animal out of the pit. And they wouldn't worry about whether they were violating the Sabbath. They would immediately help. And so Jesus is putting this test to them. If you would help your sons and if you could help your animals, who, your animals who are admittedly way less important than your sons, why can't I heal someone on the Sabbath? That's the question he puts to them. Now, no one answers Jesus' question. Nobody speaks up. Now, Jesus is at a big dinner party here. It's, you know, like, like you have people over after church. It's, it's the Sabbath. They've been to synagogue, and now they gather for a big, a big meal afterward. So Jesus uses this occasion to talk about popular behavior and etiquette at occasions like these, at parties like these. He's been watching how they're behaving and how the attitudes that they display at situations like this how their attitudes reveal their hypocrisies and, and how their attitudes are so inconsistent with the kingdom of God. So they were watching Jesus closely and they were trying to set him up, but Jesus has been watching them too. They had hoped to expose Jesus as a transgressor of the law, but Jesus is the one who unmasks their inappropriate behavior around the table. So let's pick up for verse seven and see how he does this. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And, and he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he is who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So, so there's a twofold correction here. Jesus addresses one correction toward the guests 
and how you behave as a guest. And he directs another correction toward the host and how you behave as a host. This is a twofold correction. Uh, one is about the humility of the guest and one is about the humility of the host. If you think back to uh, wealthy first century homes throughout the ancient world, there was, a, there was a definite pecking order around the dinner table. They didn't have dinner tables like you and I have with, with chairs and tables. They had couches typically arranged in a U-shape around a very low table. And the way that you ate was you leaned on the couch. And so if you can imagine a great U, the uh, master of the house or the Lord would sit at the middle, at the, at the apex of the U, that would be the seat of highest honor, and next to him would be the seats of next highest honor. And because they were leaning on their left elbow, the man to his right would be practically leaning on his chest, like John does at the Last Supper when John leans uh, on the breast of Jesus uh, in the upper room. And next to him would be the man who is, who is sitting uh, to the left of the highest seat and, and he's leaning on. And so there's this intimacy of conversation and of fellowship there at, at the table. And of course, these are the highest ranked seats and then, and then you go down the rank uh, leading around the corners of the U. And if you, were, if you were nobody, then you either ate in the courtyard or you ate in the servants' quarters or you ate, I guess, at the kids' table. I guess they had a place to lean uh, as well. So you can imagine when you get to a party like this and if there are no place cards, by the way, isn't that always so re re uh, such a relief when you get place cards at a, at a reception? It's like, oh, okay, I don't have to figure this out. I know where I'm supposed to sit. Um, you get to a place like this and there, there are no place cards there's a mad scramble. There's all this social jockeying, like, oh, you, you're gonna sit here? Well, well, can I take this one or uh, sit here? And, and there's this, this almost childish scramble for the highest seat, like when they open the doors at Walmart on Black Friday, or, or like the first turn at the Indianapolis 500. There's always a wreck at the first turn. The race is 500 miles, but they always want to win it on the first turn, and there's always a pilot there on the first turn. Of the, of the race. That's how they're acting. And Jesus has watched them scramble toward the front. He noted, he noted how they chose the best places. And he said, you know, when you're invited to a wedding feast, don't invite yourself up to the front and sit down in the best place. What's going to happen when someone who deserves that seat more than you is brought by the host? And he says, oh, actually, I wanted, I wanted him to sit here. And you're sitting in the seat of honor where are you going to go? Are you going to move over one seat? No, there's already somebody sitting there. Are you going to move over another seat? No, there's already somebody sitting there. Where are you going to go? You're going to go to the kids' table. <laughs> you're going you're to go to the servants' quarters. You're going to go from the highest place to the lowest place. You're going to go to the tail of the line. You've set yourself up for humiliation. How much better is it, Jesus says, to hang back, take the lowest seat, assume that the lowest seat is where you belong. Don't assume that you belong at the front. Don't assume that you have any honor or, or influence or, or, or respect. Uh, go for the lowest seat. That's, that's, where, that's where you belong. And if, and if someone sees you at the kids' table or somebody sees you at the servants' corner, uh, quarters, they say, oh, oh, what? yes, it's so nice to see you here. Thank you for coming. Come up here with me and sit at the head of the table. And they give you that honor. 
well, that would be a blessing. You see, honor is not expected. It's not assumed. Glory is not grasped for. Jesus didn't grasp for glory. Jesus didn't fight and claw for honor or respect. Glory is granted. Respect is granted. You don't deserve any honor, respect, or glory. And so Jesus says this, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's, that's a principle I try to practice, and I'm, I'm working on teaching my kids. When you go to a place where there are lots of people, you don't, you don't kind of shoulder yourself into the spotlight. You don't, you, don't, you don't try to kind of insinuate yourself or assert yourself into uh, the, the inner circle. The, the impulse is to always find the people you know, the people you're most comfortable with, the people who affirm you and, and make you feel good. Resist that impulse and find the person who is sitting by themselves. Find the person who is alone. Find the person who is outside the circle. Engage the person who is new or different or outside for whatever reason. Don't promote yourself to the center of attention. Go to the outside and maybe when, when you, if you get promoted, they will come with you and they will be promoted with you. Uh, of course, at the heart of this behavior that Jesus is correcting is this worldly impulse of self-promotion. Getting ahead in the world means status-seeking. It means self-assertion. It means in getting, getting ahead in the world means putting yourself into and insinuating yourself into places you may not belong or may not be wanted or may not be expected or accepted. But Jesus says that's, that's how things work in the world. But in my kingdom... I mean, if you want to be rewarded by my father, the way to get ahead is to take the place of less honor, of less status. You gain glory by giving it up. You gain honor by giving it up. You are exalted through humility. And if you want to be glorified, you need to get on your hands and knees and you need to scrub the floor and you need to take out the garbage and you need to clean bathrooms. That's, that's, how, you get, that's how you get exalted. That's how you get glorified. And so to the hosts... Jesus says, well, you need to practice humility too, because the only people you invite to your parties are the people who can repay you. That's the, the only people you have over are the people who can give you an invitation to their party. It's just this inbred exchange of favors, a closed system where you get out what you put in. But how about this? Jesus says, when you give a feast, why don't you invite the poor? Why don't you invite the maim or the lame or the blind? Why don't you invite those who are on the outside? And if so, if you do this, you will be blessed because they can't repay you. You'll be blessed by the Father. Remember this, as you and I, as we rejoice in all that Jesus has given us, and we must, we must do this unapologetically, rejoice through good food and good drink and music and all these wonderful things. And especially as, as we're working on this property and as, we, as we're able to use it more and more for worship and for festivity, when, when we can host dances and celebrations and great, great feasts, the goal of this is not for you and me to have these little inbred parties where we can have our own conversations, where we can raise you know, the drawbridge and, and rejoice behind walls of a fortress. That's not the goal. That's not the purpose. That's not the point of any of this. The point is that we are deliberately including the outsider, the person, the person who doesn't know how to dance our dances, the person who doesn't know how to tie a tie. They don't, they don't know which fork to use. They, they, they have to learn the behavior and, and we're there to help them. That, that's where true blessing rests. And so, so it's a challenge to all of us. Jesus' words are, so 
So in what way do you invite the poor and the maim and the blind and the lame to your table? In what way are we inviting the poor, maim, blind, lame to, to this table? That's, that's Jesus' challenge to all of us. Now, sometimes, and Jesus says this, when you invite people to a great feast, they don't come. No matter how good the food is, no matter how great the entertainment, no matter how long you, you spent cleaning and, and decorating, no, no matter how much effort you've put into it, there will always be those who say, no, that's not for me. I'm, I'm not really interested. I don't really like you all that much to accept this invitation. I'm not, I'm not interested in spending time with you. I don't, I don't need you. I'm not really interested in what you're offering. And so Jesus addresses that with another parable. First, somebody, somebody shouts something in, in the middle of uh, uh, Jesus's um, teaching here, verse 15. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And he said to him, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm gonna test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master and the master of the house being angry said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded and still there's room. And the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who are invited shall taste my supper. Uh, Jesus is teaching and he's saying these things to the guests and to the host and somebody just, just bursts out and says, blessed is he who eats bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, okay, you know, uh, uh, do you even know what it means to eat bread in the kingdom of God? I mean, if I'm extending this invitation to you, are you going to be the ones who, one of the ones who accept this invitation? And then this he uses this, Jesus uses this as a launching point to tell another parable about a man who goes to great lengths and a man who goes to great expense and he prepares a great feast, so he invites many. And that's the first invitation. There are actually two invitations in this parable. Um, one commentator said that in, in an age where um, people didn't have uh, you know, clocks everywhere like we do today, where time is kind of elastic, if you were gonna throw a great feast, you start out by saying, hey, friends, everybody in the, in the neighborhood, everybody in the community, all my, all my buddies, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna throw this great feast uh, next week, I'm gonna, we're going to kill a cow and we're going to have the best wine and we're going to have the best bread and we're going to have raisins and figs and all this good stuff. In a week, can you come? And you send your servants out and, and the servants go out and say, hey, save the date. We've, we've got a big party coming. And then, and then you get the response back. Yeah, everybody, everybody can make it. Everybody said that sounds good. And if everybody said, no, you forget, we're all going to Jerusalem for a pilgrimage that week. You think, oh, wait, 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 I'm not supposed to do that. We'll, we'll schedule it a different time. Well, that's the first that's the first invitation. And then, uh, and then on the big day, when the, when the supper's ready, when it's about to hit the table, you send your servants out again, and they're all going to go around and say, hey, remember, we said we're going to have a big feast today. Get your clothes on, put your best robe on, get washed up, uh, put, every, put, put the animals to bed, and come on over. We're about to start the party. Let's go. Let's, let's, let's feast. Come now, for all things are ready, is what the servants say in this parable. 
So, so this is what happens. The man invited many people and he didn't get any discouragement. Nobody said, I can't make it. Nobody said, nah, that ain't happening. He invited many. And then the day of the feast, he sends out his servants again. And his servants say, supper's on the table, wash up, put on your best robe. But they all, with one accord, began to make excuses. And these are really, really dumb lame excuses. I mean, they're really bad. The first man says, I bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. Right. You know how you buy real estate all the time without looking at it first, right? You know that. I mean, they didn't have, you know, Zillow or, or uh, you know, it's not like he, he saw, looked it up on the internet to see it. Really? You bought land without looking at it and you have to go see it now? Like it, it won't wait till tomorrow, right? Uh, that land will just evaporate before you get there. That's a terrible excuse. I mean, you could come up with something better than that, right? That's weak. That's a weak excuse. The next man says, I bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to test them. Oh, five yoke of oxen. That's 10, that's 10 animals. You bought 10 animals without knowing whether they would do the job. And now this can't wait until tomorrow. You have to go test them now at supper time. When I invited you to a great feast, you're going to go plowing tonight. Right. Okay. I got it. That's a weak. That's a weak excuse. The third one sounds super spiritual. Maybe even sounds romantic. I have married a wife and therefore I can't come. Now Deuteronomy says if a man gets married, he's free from warfare for a year. He doesn't have to join the military for a year. That's what Deuteronomy says. Um, it doesn't say anything about social obligations. It doesn't say anything about keeping your, your commitments. Uh, was this a surprise wedding? Did, did this, you know, jump up out of nowhere between the time I invited you to my party and now you got married and, and y'all can't come over? I mean, she's invited too. I mean, you can bring her. I, I didn't say she couldn't come. These are just weak. They're so weak. They're terrible excuses. So the servant comes back to his master in the parable and he says, you know, your friends are really terrible people. I mean, these are really, really bad people that you have as friends. I mean, they're quite simply awful, awful people. And so the master says, okay, that's it. Go out and find whoever you can, the poor, the disabled, the infirm, whoever you can find. Quick, the food's getting cold. Get these people in here. And the servants go out and they bring in whoever they can find. And still there are empty seats around the table. And he says, I want you to go out to the edges of town. And I want you to beat the bushes. And I want you to drag in here everybody who could sit at this table and enjoy this supper so that my house can be filled. I want every seat around my table full. I, I, I don't want an empty seat in my house. For I say to you that none of those who were invited initially will taste of my supper. The kingdom implications are obvious to this. Jesus comes to invite Israel. Israel, they're God's friends, right? Jesus comes to invite Israel to this feast that he's spreading. He's given them plenty of time to respond. And when it comes to sit down at the table, they're full of excuses. They're distant. They're aloof. They're cold. They're cavalier. They're too cool for school. They just don't want to come. And so Jesus invites now the outsider, the Samaritan, the Gentile, the unclean, the sick, the formerly demon-possessed, the tax collector, the publican. These are they who sit down at the table. These are the ones who are going to be at the party. And the ones who thought they belonged there, 
the ones who thought they deserved to be there by, by reason of their status and station as members of the covenant people, they stay outside. There are also a few practical instructions to this beyond the kingdom implications. As, I, as I've often said, and you've heard me say this a lot, I'm not going to apologize, I'm going to repeat it, at the center of church life is festivity. Feasting and rejoicing is at the center of church life. And this is not something we do every day of the week. I mean, this is not even something we do every week uh, on, the, on the calendar of the church. But, but when the invitation does go out to come feast, to come fellowship, to come study, to come rejoice, that invitation isn't for somebody else. That invitation is for you. I mean, don't read that invitation and say, oh, well, I'm sure those people who are invited are going to have a lot of fun, but that's not for me. No, that invitation is for That is for you. You are being called to a feast of fellowship, of discipleship, a feast of service, a a feast of worship, a feast of gospel ministry. That invitation is for you. And it's not a a plot to disrupt your your family time. It's it's not a plot to disrupt your, your, your time with your people. This is family time. This these are your people. The church is your family. So it's always confused me how going to Jimmy's soccer game or going to the mall or going to the park or going on a picnic or going to the beach or, or going to a movie, that, that's all family time. But church, that's not family time. If you've got an answer to that, I need you to explain it to me. How is doing something with the people of God not family time? All the other stuff is family time. But church, church activities, that's not family time. Please explain that to me. So, so the invitation goes out and you're being called to come. You're being called to sit down at a table and feast together with God's people. And the second point is, when you're invited, respond and keep your commitment. Don't make lame excuses like the people in the parable. Now, there there are things called reasons. Reasons are not excuses. I have the plague (laughs) is a reason. (laughs) I have to work tonight and I have to support my family. That's a reason. Um... I have three flat tires and a dead battery. That's a reason. That's, those are reasons. Excuses are, uh, I, I bought land and I have to go look at it. Uh, I got married and I can't come. Those are, those are excuses. Now what G- Jesus calls them excuses. And they're different from reasons. And I think we, uh, I think we recognize that. But, but make the appointment, write it down. And unless, unless your head catches on fire, you're going to be there. Uh, sometimes you get conflicting invitations. Well, you just keep the first promise that you made. You say to the second invitation or the second uh, host, well, I'd love to join you. That sounds really great. That sounds like a lot of fun. And maybe inside you're even saying, I kind of wish I could go there instead. But you've already made a commitment. And you say, you know what? I'll have to catch you next time. I've already committed. I'm going to keep my word. That's just good planning. And that's just, that's just knowing your commitments and keeping them. And Jesus addresses that too. He continues here. And he, he's talking about loyalties and planning ahead from verse 25 forward. Now, great multitudes went him, with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest, after he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, 
this man began to build and was not able to finish? Or, or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other's still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, this first thing that Jesus says here is a hard saying, but in Israel in the first century and in many parts of the world today, following Jesus requires you to go against your father and your mother, against your brother and your sister. To be baptized into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to result in you being shunned by your family, hated, rejected. That's, that's the case. And even for us, we don't live in that kind of culture today. We're not persecuted in that way. But even for us, our first loyalty above all others is to Jesus. No other loyalty eclipses our loyalty to Jesus. It is something we must drive into our children. We show that by faithfulness to worship and by faithfulness to, uh, to, to prayer and to the, 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 the business and the activity and the work of the church. We show them Jesus is my, it's my number one loyalty. Jesus is my highest allegiance. Nothing else eclipses that. And that's what Jesus is calling for. Not even your mom or your daddy, not even your love for them. There's no allegiance that's higher than our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, such that our love for him is so radical that it looks like we're hating everyone else and everything else by comparison. And Jesus adds to this, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, the cross is still a ways off for Jesus, and nobody sitting there really has an idea of what's about to happen with Jesus and, uh, in Jerusalem. But they do know for sure that, that the cross is a symbol of ridicule and shame. And if somebody's carrying his cross, he's not worried about securing his future. If somebody's carrying his cross... He's not stockpiling possessions. He's not pursuing uh, nobility or status. The one who's carrying his cross is committing himself to dying. The one who's carrying his cross is certainly not trying to jockey for position at the head of the table. And that's the call of Jesus, to come pick up a cross and carry it with him, giving up everything temporary to gain eternal life. But Jesus adds to this, if you're going to do this, you have to consider the cost. Don't take this on lightly. Don't take this on carelessly. He talks about a man building a tower. And I tried to make the, some connection. I couldn't see this, but you know, in the very last chapter, he talked about a tower falling. So at least there's some relevance to this topic uh, that uh, you, you, this, this national disaster just happened where a tower fell and killed 18 people. Uh, we read about that in chapter 13. So Jesus says, if you're going to build a tower, you're going to you're going to think, do I have enough money to finish this tower? Lest you get started, run out of money, and then everybody makes fun of you. They mock you and say, look at this guy. He starts things and he never, he never finishes them. It's a big joke. What king, Jesus says, goes to make war against another king and doesn't think first? I've got 10,000 men. He's coming at me with 20,000 men. Do I, do I take that risk? Do I roll the dice? Or do I send a delegation and go sue for peace? Jesus said, what king doesn't think through that? These two parables come at the same question from different directions, from opposite ends. The builder, on the one hand, he can build or not, depending on whether he has the money to do it. There's no urgency to building a tower. I mean, has anybody come into your house and said, you've got to build a tower right now? I mean, like this afternoon, we have to get started. There's, we have to add an addition to your house. We have to build a garage. I mean, there's no, there's no sense of urgency 
or, or foreboding to building something, building a tower. So you can sit back and you can say, I can do it or not. The king, on the other hand, is being invaded and must do something. He has to make a decision. Do I send my armies out to meet the, the invaders or do I ask for peace? Do I surrender? Which one, which one do I do? This, I don't have a choice. I have to make a decision. So in the first parable, Jesus is saying, sit down and think about whether you can afford to follow me. In the second parable, he says, sit down and think about whether you can afford not to follow me. Because the kingdom is like an invading army. And if you, you refuse its demands, you're going to be run over. Or you can surrender to it and become part of it. The point is clear and simple. Jesus doesn't want half-hearted followers. He's, he's not discouraging discipleship, but he's warning against the kind of malaise that sets in when you really haven't considered what you're getting yourself into. Your heart grows weak and lazy, and, and you give up in the middle of the fight. Jesus is not looking for worthless hangers-on. He's not looking for layabouts to be his disciples, the, the kind of people who can sit around and watch other people work. Is there anything more... Um, humiliating than sitting in a chair while somebody vacuums around you? I mean, is that, do you ever feel more lazy than when somebody's vacuuming the floor around you? I've, I've never felt more lazy than that. I always have to jump up and say, oh, I gotta arrange some magazines or something. I gotta, I gotta look productive. Or when, when somebody's carrying in groceries, it's like, no, we stop, we jump up, let's get the groceries and help mama and get her, get the groceries inside. Uh, that's, that's the kind of disciples that Jesus is asking for, the kind who who are, uh, whose default switch is to, to jump up and to engage. And, and to drive this home, last two verses of the chapter will be done. He adds one little parable about salt, verse 34. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, salt as you and I know it, the salt in our salt shakers, can't lose its taste. So, so what is Jesus talking about? I mean, it's, it's impossible for pure sodium chloride to lose its savor. But the salt used in first century Palestine was not pure sodium chloride. It, it, was, it was possible for the salt in their salt shaker to be a substance that has NaCl in it, right? It, it had salt in it, but, but when all that, all that sodium chloride leaches out, what's left was, was not salt, and it didn't taste like salt. And if that happened, whatever was in there was completely useless. You can't use it as fertilizer. You can't put it on the compost heap. Uh, you, you have to throw it away. And that's the destination of lazy, worthless, prideful, arrogant, worldly disciples. They get tossed out. So, so, so wrap it up this way and think, think in terms of what Jesus is asking for. It sounds like in, in one way, you, you may think this is overwhelming and this is daunting and this is foreboding all at the same time. He, he sounds like a politician who says, vote for me. A vote for me is a vote to lose your house. It's a vote to lose your family. It's a vote to lose everything that you love and care for. Higher taxes, lower wages, vote for me and lose everything. Lose everything you love the most. Who's on my side? Here's a bumper sticker and a yard sign. You think, that's a terrible strategy. That doesn't sound, that doesn't sound right. And even if that's true, that's not what you lead with, right? You gotta, you gotta polish that up a little bit. But, but is that what Jesus is saying? No, that's not at all an accurate description of what Jesus is calling for. Imagine instead a famous adventurer leading a great expedition. 
Say he's going to hack his way through a jungle. He's going to go through a dangerous mountain pass to bring urgent medical aid to a group of people who are cut off from the rest of the world. You can't get there by helicopter. You, you can't, there's, there's no way there but to just hack your way through the jungle. And he's about to go on this expedition. And this great adventurer says, if you want to come with me, you're going to have to leave behind everything that you can't carry in a bag. Don't take anything into the jungle that you're going to, uh, uh, that you're not going to be able to leave there. Everything you take with you, you're going to have to uh, be ready to give up. The path is too steep and too treacherous to carry a lot of stuff. Also, if you have any last words, if you have any goodbyes to say, if you have any I love yous to say, you better do it now. This is a dangerous route and there's a solid chance that some of us are not going to make it back. That's, that's the kind of call that Jesus is issuing. Count the cost that way. Are you in or are you out? Now, if you, now if you hear that, you might say, well, I, I don't know about that. I may be out. But that's closer to what Jesus is saying. It's, it's also what the call to discipleship is part amazing, risky, thrilling, terrifying adventure and part feast. If we can mix that up somehow, part, part Raiders of the Lost Ark and part my big fat Greek wedding, whatever. I haven't seen that in forever, so I don't know if that's even good. But uh, it's, it's just think of that. Part adventure and part feast. That's what, that's, he's, Jesus is always using these metaphors and he's always mixing them up. And we have to extend both invitations. This is, this is an adventure. This is a feast. Come, join this adventure. Come to the dinner at the table of Jesus. The call of the gospel is that God is inviting you to his house so that you can be forgiven of your sins, so that you can hear him speak, so that you can tell him your needs, so that you can sit at his table forever with Jesus and his people. That, that's the good news of the gospel. The good news is this. God wants to eat with you. He wants to party with you. He wants to feast with you and dance with you and sing with you in his kingdom forever. That's the call. And to accept this invitation is to obtain the right to enter in, sit down in a seat of honor, and be at peace with the creator of the universe. To reject this invitation, to even, to even put off a decision until later, is to be condemned to eternal separation from him and his kingdom. As the man in the parable said, they shall not eat of my feast, those who reject this invitation. So, embrace Jesus. Accept that invitation. RSVP right away. Say, I'm going to be there. Accept his invitation. And in doing so, embrace life, which is only found with Jesus and his people. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and give you thanks for your son, who is our Savior, Jesus. And we thank you for his words, for his parables. Uh, Father, by your Holy Spirit, continue to allow these things to marinate in us this week so that as we interact with others, that, that uh, these things would be recalled to our minds and uh, both challenge us and inspire us and, and give us opportunities when it comes to uh, opportunities to invite the poor, the maimed, the blind, the lame to this table and to our tables. Uh, reveal those opportunities to us. And, and help us to see them for what they are and give us the strength uh, to, to make that invitation, to extend that invitation. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.